Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... This is an intersectional issue. It's not just women. It's older people. It's younger people. It's people with disabilities. You know, it's a non-specific gender issue in that if you feel vulnerable, you don't feel you can have access to the city. Is your city truly open to all... Public spaces should be easy to define, but barriers to entry or enjoyment are not always visible to everyone. This week we speak to two practitioners who've been working to create cities with everyone in mind. From an architect democratising public space and promoting safer streets for women, to an urban designer ensuring Indigenous communities are an integral part of the design process. That's all ahead over the next 30 minutes, right here on The Urbanist, with me, Andrew Duck. First up on today's show, we're joined by Gail Schillingford, Principal of Planning and Landscape at Toronto-based B Plus H Architects. With decades of experience in creating public spaces that foster inclusivity and cultural diversity, Gail engages with underrepresented groups, especially Indigenous community leaders and designers, to ensure that their design principles and identities are accurately represented in the built environment of Canada. Gail joined Monocle's David Stevens recently to discuss her work and she began by giving us a brief rundown of her 30-year-long career in urban design. I'm educated as a landscape architect, but you know, since midway in my program, I became very attracted to urban design and thinking about landscape in the bigger picture, wanting to be part of the bigger picture visioning and planning. And after I graduated... I was headhunted by an urban design and planning firm fairly quickly called Urban Strategies, an amazing firm in Toronto. And most of my work was focused on the development and enhancement of the public realm. And that's where I felt that I could certainly contribute the most in terms of urban design and community planning. And certainly, again, the bigger picture, you know, in the master planning context. I shifted to, I worked with them for quite a few years shifted to another wonderful firm called Dialogue as an associate. And there I undertook all scales of urban design, but primarily focused on post-secondary master planning. I was very attracted to the post-secondary forum, being able to design environments focused around education and creating places where we can nourish the mind through the public realm, especially. So that was attractive to me. I think I Ah, I did that for about 11 years of my career. But this is where I started to establish relationships with the Indigenous communities across Canada, because in post-secondary planning, you know, certainly now, particularly now, you have to engage the Indigenous community in the conversations. So I established wonderful relationships with many elders and youth and students through, you know, that time in my career. But I've since started to shift back to include more of what I would call sort of the pure landscape design. And it's because of our shifting time. It's because we now have to think of building resilient communities. And a lot of that has to do with with nature and the environment. I want to touch on that relationship with Indigenous communities that you have. In a country like Canada and my country of New Zealand included as well, many others around the world, 
Engaging with Indigenous communities when designing is critically important. In fact, it's essential. So what are the key steps in making sure that Indigenous voices are part of that process? You know, one thing I was taught through many of my Indigenous moments is that the thinking is there is nothing about us without us. And they will say that over and over. This is their land. This is their territory. And if we are going to change the land, rebuild the land, remodel the land in any way, they need to be part of the conversation. So from a project perspective, it starts with budgeting right at the get-go in the RFP stage to make sure that we're including Indigenous participation in projects so that when you're inviting the community in, you're not asking for a one-workshop, two-minute conversation with them. You're asking them to be involved throughout the process. And that is their expectation. Usually as a process, we would reach out immediately to the elders, to the key community voices, usually who are part of the territory that we are in. And we ask them to help organize the best Indigenous engagement process and strategy to feed into our process. It is not something that we come prepared and we, we bring to them and ask them to participate in, we start by asking them what the best strategy is for us and for the territory that we're working in. So the expectation is they will structure the process, we will help to facilitate that process, and then we're there to listen to their stories and we're there to listen to their recommendation. So again, it is about making a commitment right from the beginning to be able to do so. And that commitment can often be expensive. You know, firms need to understand that it's not just a superficial conversation or a superficial context. If we really want to engage the Indigenous community, we have to be committed to do so in terms of time, in terms of cost, and, you know, certainly in terms of listening. I want to talk a little bit about public spaces now and making sure that they are public for everyone, you know, the definition of public, really. Sometimes public spaces can present barriers we might not realise, we might not see if we're not affected by them so much. I wonder if there are some tenets of a truly accessible public realm that you could explain, and maybe even if there's some aspects of your career in landscape architecture, some ways in which even the landscape can deter certain people or make people not feel safe or at home or like a public space is truly for them. I think there are two parts in terms of a response to this question, because there are you know, different considerations that have to be addressed when you're creating an inclusive public space. You know, what designers often respond to immediately, of course, is the physical design of space, the physical perspective of space. Of course, you want to create a space that is free, as in cost, so it's accessible to all in society has no cost to anyone. And it's a space that is open. So from, again, from a physical perspective, visually and physically with minimal physical barriers, spaces should be flexible and diverse and flexible, allowing people to participate in the space in areas where they are most comfortable in, right? So if the design of space is fairly rigid, It doesn't allow people to seek areas where they are most comfortable. So the concept of movable tables and chairs in a landscape works better than fixed seating 
because again, somebody can move that table around to a place where, you know, they know they feel comfortable, they know they feel welcome, know that they don't have to deal with any sort of negative experiences. Connecting people with nature is another big one. Creating a safe oasis, especially in, you know, hard urban context, people migrate to plants and trees, the ability to touch and smell and have sensory experiences in place, environments where you can experience seasonal change. Having a magnet and a tractor in a space is another thing that I find is important, whether it's water, you know, some key feature could be art that people gravitate to. This is a way in which we can bring people together and allow people to connect. We have a park in Toronto called Cumberland Park, and it has a huge rock outcrop that is to represent the Canadian shield. And everybody and anybody gravitates to this park because of that rock outcrop and kids play on it and people sit and have their lunch on it. No matter who you are, you see the the mix of diversity on that rock. So, you know, having a, a magnet in a landscape environment is pretty important. The other aspect which designers often don't think about or neglect to consider is the fact that people come to space and place from, you know, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different world experiences. And that's often baggage that we carry around with us. And I'll say us because I'm a woman, female, person of color. It's baggage that we carry with us all the time. And it comes to the fore when we are experiencing place and especially place that we are not familiar with. So the concept of overcoming mental and psychological barriers, not just physical barriers, have to be considered if we are creating inclusive and enjoyable environments. What usually deters people of color, minorities, indigenous people, underrepresented groups from entering public space has to do with our history, It has to do with knowing that in the past, public spaces were designed to keep us out. So again, this is part of the baggage that we experience even before entering space. So when we enter a space, whether we're confident about who we are or not, we're never sure what to expect when we experience space, when we experience people in place and what will be thrown at us, such as biases, discrimination, racism, etc. So we already come to a place with a shield, with our guards up, so to speak. And is there a specific project that you've worked on, perhaps, that is a really good example of encompassing all the things that you've talked about here today? Absolutely. Well, I'll, I'll talk about a project I worked on in the past. It's called uh, Joel Weeks Park, and it was uh, a parquette in the heart of an existing uh, low-income community, primarily Caribbean representation. Adjacent and surrounding this park and this community, of course, the world started to gentrify. The world started to develop new housing, you know, to suit sort of middle and high-income communities. And there was certainly a fear that this change in, in the context would mean a change for certainly this underrepresented community. And so the city and councillors decided that the park in the heart of this community 
had to be the means in which to bring this community together and not only the existing community, but the new community to make this as inclusive an environment as possible for all that are a part of this neighborhood. And so we were called in, I was called in to help facilitate the community conversation to understand what the design of this space needed to be to bring these two communities together in a way that celebrated the culture and identity of the existing community, but also included the culture and identity of a new community coming in. And the most important part of the whole process was the engagement, which was incredible. We engaged with all kinds of people, all different voices. We had engagement for the little kids who, in my mind, brought the best information to the table. But it's through that process we were able to understand both voices and the needs of certainly two very different and and diverse communities. The park was designed, and thank goodness it was designed in response to what was heard through the engagement process. And today, and I, I went to visit it fairly recently, it was incredible to see people from the existing community mixing with people from the new community. And in fact, it's become such a, a magnet, as I said earlier, the idea of magnet, that other people from different areas of the community consider this now their hub, their place to hang out, which is wonderful. As I was in the park, there was a, an event going on. And so I asked one of the little kids what it was all about. And she said, oh, we're having our annual summer barbecue, which the the Caribbean community puts on for the entire neighborhood. And I thought that was really exciting. And I, and I walked on over to be part of it. And I realized there were two or three police cars parked there. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what does this mean? And I went over and I was just completely surprised. It was just so wonderful to see what was before my eyes and essentially It was two or three police officers with their hands stuck in the barbecue chicken buckets, basically. And they were there to barbecue chicken for this community. I thought, this is incredible. So I had a conversation with one of them. And I said, are you here to police this event? What's your role in in what's going on here today? And the policeman said, are you kidding me? He said, we're here to barbecue the chicken. We've been part of this community back in the day when we had to police the negative aspects of you know, the goings-on in the park to now being completely embedded in the community. And I said, well, does this have anything to do with the park and the redesign of this park? And he said, absolutely. It was and is the means that has brought the two communities together. Gail Schillingford. Principal Planning and Landscape at B Plus H Architects there in conversation with David Stevens. Creating places which are open to all requires participation from all. Our next guest today, Deborah Saunt, is a true believer in this democratisation of public space. Deborah is one of the founding directors of DSDHA, an architecture, urban design and research studio based in London. Her work addresses emerging needs in our rapidly evolving built environment, from designing safer streets for women to increasing spatial justice in the city. 
Monocle's Carlotta Ribello sat down with Deborah to explore the multitude of lenses through which people view the public realm. Carlotta began by asking about some of the ways in which women experience public space differently to men. The simplest way it unfolds is that some people just don't go out and don't use public space because they don't feel comfortable. So you might notice in the evening if you're out that the number of women just drops and drops and drops the later it gets. So it's a very straightforward self-selection that goes on, that women choose not to use many spaces. And sort of practical things mean that maybe a shortcut you take during the day, you don't during the evening, so you end up walking further. You'll find there are areas of the city that some women just won't go into. They literally feel that uncomfortable because of past behaviour or reputation. And particularly, you know, if you're a woman with children, you have another kind of vulnerability too because over 70% of women in the UK say they have experienced sexual harassment in the street. And it does happen when you're with children and with family. You don't have to be on your own and it doesn't have to be at night. So I think it's happening on such a huge scale that women almost take it as red. But what we're finding is a lot of men didn't realise that we were having to take this kind of preventative action to stop things happening. So I think we have to kind of recalibrate our understanding of who has a right to the city. Well, everybody should, but they don't actually. And so maybe we have to kind of roll it back and work out why people feel uncomfortable and what we can do to change that. And I think the main thing is to realise this is an intersectional issue. It's not just women. It's older people. It's younger people. It's people with disabilities. You know, it's a non-specific gender issue in that if you feel vulnerable, you don't feel you can have access to the city. So I think we have to think of an idea of spatial justice. We think of social justice. We kind of think of economic justice. We even now talk in terms of health justice. And, you know, in terms of climate justice, where are people being placed and, you know, what kind of risks are they having? So I think what we have to do is consider the risks that people feel they face, whether they're real or imagined. We have to understand that everybody has a right to that city and we need to look through many different lenses to make sure that that risk is mitigated and people feel that it is accessible. Now, we've been talking about the issues, but one of the reasons we wanted to speak to you as well is because of the solutions and the work you've been doing and your studio has been doing to address some of these issues and implement some of the solutions into the design process. How has your practice then chosen to address these inequalities in the way that people use public space? Well, one of the things people think is, how do you address this? Just put more lights on. (laughs) There was a really, really sort of tone-deaf advert recently on TV of a woman running through the city in quite well-lit spaces at 2am, implying that that would be fine. What you need to do is do really grounded research to look at who's there and who's not there. So in our work, we're looking for what's evident, but also what's missing. So it's a way of looking deep. It takes a bit of extra time. And we're not referring to the standard toolkit of highways engineers solutions, which is a particularly male gaze. We're going into each space and looking at it very contextually and trying to work out what the issues are and then how to solve them. We recently worked in Broadgate Circle, right in the centre of the city, a very sort of male territory. It was an area rather like a kind of amphitheatre for gladiatorial combat where the men would meet with a few women for drinks after work. And what we found was it was very busy straight after work, but really empty during the day. And women in particular wouldn't stop there. So we looked at the patterns of movement 
and realised there was nowhere where you felt safe in terms of you could sit, you had clear sight lines in and out of that space, that you could sense that other people were watching you in a protective way rather than voyeuristic. So you're well overlooked by a number of different people so you know that they'll react if they see anything untoward. And then we created bespoke furniture using a system called proxemics, which is how people like to feel when they're in intimate spaces. So we took a space that was really challenging and made it intimate. And now I'm pleased to say it's used all week every day, morning to night, and now by a majority of women. So it's interesting, by looking at the small things, we can make a female's experience much, much better. It's not just about turning on bright lights. Is there an advantage of you having the position that you do, obviously, working in these projects? Because you can put yourself in the perspective of the user, the female user in this case, of such spaces. Yeah, I think as a woman... You use your spatial intelligence, this awareness of space, in a different way. And as an architect, I suppose we're born with acute sensitivity to it. So I think we not only consider it from the views of a woman, but also a child. It's definitely been something that I've been aware of. If you make a city that's safe for children, it's safe for everybody. So the female gaze is important in cities. You mentioned there spatial intelligence. Perhaps you could elaborate more on what spatial intelligence means in relation to your projects and to your work. Yes, spatial intelligence has really come about as a word for us, which sums up the unique ability that as sort of three-dimensional designers that we have. And it's a skill we all have that we're born with. And we're sort of almost encouraged to switch it off and stop playing, stop thinking about that den that you're making under the stairs or out in the woods and get down to your textbook you know, you're good at maths, you're good at writing, you're good at science. And we forget some people are very good at space. So we have a way of reading space in a way that others just don't see it. And it's imperative that we as designers contribute to the climate crisis, to female safety by using that spatial intelligence. So it's a kind of clarion call to mobilise all designers We've been talking here about, you know, how to use design to increase equity in the way we all move around the city. But I find it interesting as well when we talk about these concepts, it's important to think that the city is not static. It keeps evolving. And so should the way we approach space. So I'm curious, what are some of the ways that you ensure throughout these projects, like the one you mentioned in Broadgate Circus, that it approaches building a fairer city in a way that it matches how the city evolves? in the future. Well, what's fantastic now is that we have on-the-ground research where we go out and we become urban detectives and we look at how people are using space, but we also have wonderful access to digital data and that data can show us the kind of hidden desire lines, the hidden sort of ambitions people have in space. So, for example, we will trawl Instagram to find out what the flavour of an area is now and then think, well, what would we like it to be? Because you'll find, if it's a macho kind of area, it will literally have photographs of macho things on Instagram. And you think, well, there's a a measurable insight we can take. Let's see if we do the project. Will that change? And indeed, we've seen that. We see that on lots of projects. When we started working on a wonderful space called Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens, if you had looked at its reputation, it was mainly crime, strip joints, kind of dereliction. 15 years later, it's amazing city farm. It's part of the brilliant culture of Vauxhall with the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. 
it's really at the heart of so many different communities in a way that it didn't before. And so what we look at really basically there was how do people move through the space and what can they see? We discovered that when you went into that space 15 years ago, you couldn't see out. People like to go into spaces where they know there's more than one exit. People like to feel that they're overlooked positively by neighbours to make sure everything's safe. And as long as you've got movement and view and decent sight lines, you're on to the beginnings of a successful public space. Now, you mentioned earlier about you know trying to approach all these projects without the standardised, often male-centric guidelines or standards. One of the things you've also contributed to is the London's Highways and Footways Accessibility Guidelines. Can you tell us a bit more about that and why it was important for you personally to collaborate in that publication? Yeah, this is a publication. It sounds really dry. Highways and <laughs> footways, emerging issues, you know, what's going on? And I mean, it would probably feel like the driest publication you could find. But really, it's about saying every time you go out on the street, it's changing. So we were tasked with saying, there's been the pandemic, what has changed? And actually, so much has changed. We're now eating on the street. We're now having electric forms of micromobility. We're expecting more from our streets. We're using them longer. People are walking more. People are cycling more. There are new issues like neurodiversity. So all of those fashionable zebra crossings, road crossings that we had appear with bright colours. Initially, everyone was, this is amazing. But in fact, if you have neurodiverse characteristics, you're going to go up to this very brightly coloured surface and say, that was a few days ago, my zebra crossing. Now it's brightly coloured. What's happened? It will be harder for the, somebody in that with that kind of characteristic to understand it. And equally, if you're a child, if you taught a child that generally you cross at crossings that look like this, they look and see a playscape and maybe want to run onto it. So it was a way of saying to all of the designers and all of the stakeholders, come to this book, check what's available, let's put the best ideas forward. And one of the simplest learnings on all of these conditions is talk to local people. Local people really know their streets and they're very rarely actually talked to. When I worked in central Somerstown, for example, I was lucky enough to go on lovely neighbourhood walks with Muslim women and their families with double buggies and everybody walking through the streets. And they were talking about which curb worked, uh, which tree narrowed the street so you couldn't get your double buggy through. They were really great nascent urban designers, but they hadn't had their voices heard before. And I learned, for example about problems with dogs in parks. I had not appreciated that for members of the Muslim community and for other communities, dogs running around are really not what you want to be in contact with. So I think by talking to locals, you build a tolerance and an understanding of, of a broader spectrum of needs and hopes for public space. Deborah, just I have one last question because we we started by explaining some of the issues and it's been brilliant to hear about a lot of the solutions and this practical work that you've been doing and your studio has been doing. I guess going back to one of the first concepts mentioned in our conversation is then how do we then increase this spatial justice in our cities? I'm sure there's not an easy answer, <laughs> otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation. But what would be your advice for, let's say, other designers, other urban planners who might be listening in and trying to figure out how can they implement some of these concepts back at home? Well, I think in terms of achieving social justice, let's say it's always going to be a work in progress, because as we evolve our cities, new needs will appear things will change constantly. So we have to always be 
ever watchful to that evolution. So always challenge your own assumptions. Never run on your preconceptions is definitely important for designers. Remember that you probably as a designer come from quite an elite <laughs> professional background and your experience won't be that of many other people. So adopt a more ground up approach. Look out, go and do that grounded research. Make sure your clients let you talk to local people, let them embed that. And remember that justice for those on the edge, if you design to the extremes, it helps everyone get a better solution. So it's good for everybody in, in the long term. Deborah Saunt, director of DSDHA Architecture there, and she was speaking with Carlotta Rebello. Well, that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Make sure you keep an eye out for more urbanism stories in the latest issue of Monocle magazine too. You can find us in all good newsstands or, of course, by becoming a subscriber at monocle.com. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens, And David also edited this show. And to play you out this week, well, here's Florence and the Machine with Landscape. Thank you for listening, city lovers. She's just like the way-